We are back with another episode of the Room for Nuance podcast. I am Sean DeMars. And I'm Russell Berger. Will you open us in prayer? Absolutely. Let's do it. Lord, we thank you for this platform. And uh, Lord, give us help today. Um, we are inadequate uh, as, as pastors, as teachers, um, even in our own walk, Lord. We are regularly reminded of how weak we are. And I'm reminded of that now when I think about the other guests that have been on this show before me. Uh, so we pray that you just be with us uh, in a special way today. Uh, help our conversation to help equip our listeners to build them up uh, for your service. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Sweet prayer, brother. So <laughs> what's been up? Uh, not much. I don't think we've sat like this with microphones in a while, have we? In a long time. And we might be doing it again soon. Uh, Lord willing. Yeah, we've talked. Uh, so I'm on staff at Sixth Avenue Community Church. Yes, but hold, you're getting ahead. I want to start from the beginning okay. and work all the way up to the present day, even okay. if it takes us Five hours? All right. Six hours? Seven hours? No, I can't do that. Okay. Let's start with the story of how you and I met. Do okay. you remember how we met? Uh, I'll tell my version. <laughs> okay. I'll be the wife who jumps in and corrects you. Yeah. Every yeah. few sentences. Yeah. So I was working for CrossFit Inc. Mm -hmm. And I, on my Instagram account, I use my social media a lot, my personal social media for a lot of CrossFit stuff. Yeah. And uh, when I was a younger Christian, I realized, hey, I can also put like Bible verses on mm -hmm. here and all the same people have to see it. Mm -hmm. So I would post some CrossFit stuff and then I'd post some, some Christian stuff. And I remember I posted an Instagram post of something and it had like a John Frame quote mm -hmm. in there. Something from his, the doctrine of the word of God. Yeah. yeah. And you messaged me and you're like, hey, I do CrossFit and I'm in Peru. I'm a missionary. Yeah. Just wanted to encourage you. And I'm from Decatur, which is kind of near where you are. Yeah. And I thought, oh, that's neat. I'll never see him. Right. And then a couple years later, like not that much longer after yeah. that, uh, I was out doing some evangelism at our local abortion mill out on the sidewalk. And there was another family I'd seen out there before, mm -hmm. and they were there, but then there was this other dude there too. And it was you. And you walked over and introduced yourself, and you're like, hey, I messaged you on Instagram like mm -hmm. a couple years ago. Mm -hmm. Do you remember that? And, and I did. And uh, you were from the church that this family was at, and you were basically just checking out like, what's going on out here? Mm -hmm. um, and we hit it off. I think we stayed in touch after that. Well, I remember we hit it off because you were the only other person out there who was preaching the gospel. Because it, it gets kind of crazy it out there. It does get crazy out there. And there was a lot of like rosary praying yep. and a lot of yelling and a, a lot of political diatribes. And I had been standing on, because the sidewalk is divided by mm -hmm. the, the driveway. And I was on one side and I had been preaching. And then I look over and I was like, man, the only other person here who's preaching is that guy. And I think I know him. And that's when I went up and... And we well, it's funny. Talking. I don't remember anything we talked about because yeah. I was like, I'm here to preach to the women and men in this parking lot. Oh, I remember. Lot. And I was yeah. like a little bit like, uh, okay, that's cool. Quit talking to me. So I yeah. <laughs> get back to trying <laughs> yeah. to save babies. Uh, I remember you told me as I forced myself upon you <laughs> in, that, in that interaction. It was non-consensual. That's right. That, that CrossFit, uh, careful now, <laughs> that CrossFit was basically paying you a full-time salary to go out there and try to save babies. Yes. Yeah. Little did they know. Little did they know. Yeah. Okay. 
Yeah. So then later, uh, I know we stayed in touch. Later, you, uh, I, I tried to get you, actually I did. I got you to come to a little training thing that someone had asked me to do. I was, I was wrapped up in this church plant group mm-hmm. through the church that we were members of uh, at the time. And I didn't fully understand what was going on, but I knew they wanted to plant churches. And I knew they specifically, yeah. they didn't use the church planting language. Yeah. Uh, but like I, the thought, CPM, I thought that's stuff. what they were doing. It turns yeah. out it was church planting movement, yeah. disciple making movement kind of stuff, which uh-huh. I didn't really understand at the time. Yeah. But I knew they wanted to go to the Nashville area and and basically be a witness to a lot of the Middle Eastern refugees that are that were coming to Nashville. Yeah. And so they had me come and teach a little bit for this this one group uh, at a Baptist church in Huntsville. And you did a great job. And I wanted you to come and you came. Yeah. You came and sat in and and I, we met up for lunch afterwards and you were like, I said, so what'd you think? And you were like, yeah, uh, I don't think you understand what a church is. <laughs> Classic Sean. And then and it was like, yeah, strong. but I got to go. And then you took off. Yeah. And, uh, and that left me scratching my head like, well, maybe I don't know what a church is. Mm. I think you had me, you gave me a book to read or you told me to read Nine Marks of a Healthy Church. Sounds like me. I did. And then I had a bazillion questions. Um, and then after that, we we went back and forth a little, I think through text and phone call. And then you came by one day, you were just in the area and you said, hey, uh, would you ever want to like maybe consider planning a church at some point? Mm-hmm. And I said, well, yeah, Lord willing. Uh, and then you disappeared to DC. <laughs> Smoke bomb. Yeah, you went to do the the internship at uh, Capitol Hill Baptist Church. Yeah, that's right. Uh, so let's pause there. Mm-hmm. Um, let's let's hear your testimony, brother. How did you come to know the Lord? Uh, so I was I was raised by a a mother who, at the time, played church. Uh, she would have probably called herself a Christian mm-hmm. when I was young, which which meant she was always somewhat involved in a small non-denominational or Baptist church yeah. wherever we happen to live. And we we moved around a lot. My dad was in the Navy and all over the Southeast. And we kids, my brother and sister and I got drugged to church uh, a couple times a year, mm-hmm. usually holidays. Christmas. Easter, Sometimes yeah. she'd get into a spurt where she was going every Sunday. Yeah. My dad never went. He was raised uh, in a Roman Catholic family and was an atheist as long as he could remember and basically raised me to be an atheist. Mm-hmm. I, I remember some some very formative conversations with him where I was like getting to spend time with dad. Like it was dad mm-hmm. time, which mm-hmm. is so important to a, a boy growing up. Yeah, He would take me out one-on-one. We'd like go to a drive-in movie theater or we'd go mountain bike. Uh, yeah. and, and that didn't happen much. So when it happened, it was special. And he would tell me like, uh, here's why you shouldn't believe in God. Mm. Here's why it's just a bunch of nonsense. Here's what you can say to the Christians around you when they tell you to believe the Bible. Yeah. And it was basically catechizing me oh, yeah. in secular worldview. And, and mm. well, <laughs> these days, not so much, just kind of the materialistic, atheistic worldview. And uh, and I, I bought into it and believed something like that for most of my youth. Uh, when I was when I got out of high school, I went into the military, um, Navy, uh, no Air Force, uh, Army, okay. and uh, in the Army, I I probably mellowed out a little. I was I'd say I was more agnostic than sort of the antagonistic atheist that yeah. I had been when I was younger. Um, some of that was probably just 
recognizing I could get shot in the face any night of the week and being that close to death and thinking about it as much as I, I did, it probably made me start to soften on my, uh, my atheistic impulses. Just, just hard to be an atheist in the foxhole. Yeah. The old saying is true. You know, there's, there's no atheists in foxholes. Cause you weren't like making coffee behind the wire. You were a, a ranger. I was in first ranger battalion. So when I was deployed, we were sleeping during the daylight hours and then we woke up as the sun was going down and we got a mission and we flew somewhere every night and Mm. grabbed bad guys and took them back. And we did that for 90 days straight. Um, and how many deployments did you do? Four. Yeah. Um, I was only in for four years. So 08, uh, sorry, 04 to 08. Yeah. And, uh, when I got out of the military, I was newly married to my wife, Catherine, and we were, uh, we, we relocated back to Huntsville, Alabama, where we both had family. And yeah, I kind of had the American dream. I had a house. I had, um, a new baby at home. We were, we had our first child and then, uh, actually we had just, we just had our second child, Barrett. So we had two very young ones at home and I was getting this great job working for CrossFit. Mm -hmm. Um, And in the midst of all that, I was hit with an overwhelming conviction of sin, Mm. just crippling. How how did that come about? Uh, It happened around the time that I was competing to be in the CrossFit Games. Um, Which you did compete in. In in 2009, I was in the CrossFit Games, (laughs) back when anybody could get in. (laughs) And, uh, and then in 2010, I, I went to the regional qualification and I missed it by just a, just a couple points. And the, and it wasn't the missing it that broke me up. It was, it was that I had basically put in a ton of time to train for that. And I was not home much at all with my wife who had just had a baby and basically neglected her and my kids to both work more than I needed to, more than I was requested to even, just to get ahead Uh and to then put in the time to train. And it was, it was causing me anxiety. Like I had so much put into this idea of like, I'm going to be the best at this. It was an idol. And when I wasn't, I realized just how, how fragile I was when all of my hopes and aspirations were in this silly thing, like my ability to win a competition, a fitness competition of all things. That's right. And uh, and so I started looking around and I remember uh, there was a guy in this competition who I'd met that that weekend. His name was Rich Frawning. Is that how you pronounced it? That's how I still pronounce it. Okay. And I'm right. (laughs) Whatever you say, man. And uh, it was his first competition and he won. And uh, I got to hang out with him a little bit and his his attitude was entirely different. It was like, yeah, I'm, I'm just here to see what happens. And uh, he wasn't phased when he lost an event and didn't seem like he'd be phased if he lost the whole thing. But in some, in, somehow he won the entire thing and he went on to win the games multiple times in a row. Yeah. And what I did know is he was a Christian. And I thought, you know, maybe he's got something that I want. It was a, it was a fairly... Wait, and so you weren't thinking, oh, he's a Christian, that's why he won. Maybe if... I start thinking about Christianity, maybe I'll win. That was not what I was thinking. Yeah. But I was thinking something almost as carnal. Okay. <laughs> okay. Which was, I'm a mess. Yeah. I feel guilty for reasons I can't entirely articulate. Okay. Uh, and I hate 
this sense that like everything about me is bound up in my performance yeah. in these competitions. And I, I feel like that's wrong. So yeah. maybe if I was a Christian, I wouldn't feel that way. Almost like someone who, like they follow the path of the Stoics. I wanted example. the therapeutic yeah, aspects right. of right. Christianity, um, which is still a gospel some people preach. And, uh, but regardless, that, that's what got me to at least start reading the Bible. Yeah. So I went home and I had a Bible on my shelf that I had since I was a teenager. I mm -hmm. don't think I'd ever opened it. Mm. I think it was the NIV. And, and every you, night, and something still happened. And every night, and some, yeah, <laughs> the Lord can strike a straight blow with a crooked stick. <laughs> uh, every night, I would, I, I kind of took over putting my son to bed, so he would. He, he was the second child, so he like got the bottle in the mouth, and he was in the rocker thing in mm. the dark, <laughs> trying to make him go to sleep. Yeah. And while I was putting him to bed, I would read the Bible with a headlamp on, in the dark, just. Started in Genesis chapter one and just read through until at some point in those weeks of reading, I, I just heard God speaking to me. I mm. recognized this is not a normal book. I'm hearing God's voice. This is a book directed at me. It's cutting to my soul mm -hmm. and I, I couldn't shake it. And so I, I recognized then that all of this guilt that I feel, I was an atheist, I mean, the only rules that applied to me in my worldview were the ones that I determined applied to me. Mm -hmm. And I had not decided that I was going to feel guilty for neglecting my family and putting work and athletic performance first and yeah. all the other things, all the profanity, all the sexual immorality uh, through, through lustful thoughts and looking mm -hmm. at pornography, all the things normal people did. Mm -hmm. None of that should have phased me, but it did. And so mm -hmm. I got the sense I'm, I'm someday going to give an account to someone outside of me who has a law that applies to me. Mm. And I feel that. And I, and I was reading this book like, oh, this is the same God. And somehow through that, I, I came to understand the gospel. Um, and my testimony is a little different because I, I really was saved just reading the Bible on my own. Yeah. Which is not typical. Not super common, yeah. Um, and so the next step for, for me was... I'm reading the Bible. Like, I think I should be in a church. Yeah. And I started talking to my wife, Catherine, who was not saved at the time either. We'd both kind of been like, I would have said I'm agnostic. She was more like, I'm spiritual, yeah. but I'm not a Christian. Yeah. And she was kind of irritated that I wanted to look for a church, especially that I wanted to take our children with me. Yeah. Like she didn't sign up for that. No. So she said, hey, I've been to this Episcopal church that's like two miles from our house. Why don't we go there? Yeah. We went there. Basically splitting the difference between yeah. atheism and Christianity. That's right. So we went there for a little yeah. while. And uh, I mean, it, I, I don't think I grew much from that. There was a little men's Bible study that I tried to go to. And I was hearing things that I wasn't sure. Do these people believe the Bible like I've come to believe it? Right. Uh, well, then at, at some point in there, Catherine was saved. And praise God. Yeah. And, and we, from my work, moved out west. Well, going out west and then saying, hey, we should find another Episcopal church was a blessing from God because they were 10 years ahead right. in the Episcopal world, which right. meant immediately our first Sunday in one of those Episcopal churches, I recognized, oh, they're just trying to make me an atheist again. Yeah. They don't believe the Bible. Right. And, uh, and that sent us down a path of trying to find a faithful church with very little understanding of what a church was supposed to be. Mm -hmm. We just knew that the Bible was the word of life and contained the words of life. And we needed, 
we needed them to teach that. Yeah. And we eventually ended up in a, a church that was, was far better than many of the others we could have been in. Uh, Vintage Faith with Dan, Dan Kimball's church in Santa Cruz. Who, by the way, he's doing actually really well now. I've, I still am friends with him on social media. Yeah. And that brother's really reading a lot of good information and digesting yeah. it and processing it on what a church is. And I'm super encouraged by that. He came out of the emergent movement right. on the right side where a lot yes. of people came out on the wrong side. That's exactly yeah. right. So, yeah. That's my assessment from a distance. Anyways. Same. Yeah. I, I, I don't keep in close contact with him anymore, but yeah. I've been encouraged to see some of his public yeah. stuff. Uh, anyway, long story short. My so you wife, were like, these people don't believe the gospel. <laughs> that's right. Let's go somewhere where they at least, at least believe the Bible to be the word yeah, of God. Right. And so we ended up there. Uh, my wife's health took a turn for the worse we uh, ended up realizing like we need to be around family. Mm-hmm. Went back to Alabama. This would have been 2013, I think. And then we bounced around between churches until I met you and you had me read some really helpful, formative books. And I suddenly saw why all of the churches I'd been in up to that point just had issues. They didn't mm-hmm. feel right. Mm-hmm. They weren't feeding us. There's just always something that felt off. Uh, and it's it's because we didn't know what a church was. And once I got the the categories to start thinking through that better, um, at that point, I think you didn't you had at that point had come back from DC and had been asked to pastor Sixth Avenue Church of God. Mm-hmm. And we came on as some early members there. If you want to help support Room for Nuance, and if you want to help get this message out to as many people as possible. Whether you're listening on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, YouTube, or any other platform, please be sure to subscribe and leave a good review. It helps us out a ton. Thank you. And we hope you enjoy the rest of this episode. Yeah, that's right. I even had you fly up to Washington, D.C. to see if you wanted to partner with us in the revitalization. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And was that a hard decision for you? Because basically we were like, hey, here's this really sad, dying church uh, can you come help us? There's no guarantee that any good thing will happen here, you know? Uh, no, that was an easy decision for me. I mean, we we had come out of a bunch of churches that in this area that just seemed way too comfortable. Mm-hmm. Um, and so and what I mean by comfortable is like just uh, almost a soft prosperity kind of preaching, a, yeah, a carnal preaching, the yeah. therapeutic gospel. Like we're going to, we're going to say all the parts of scripture that are that are true and good from this passage, but we're just going to not preach the part about hell at the very end because mm-hmm. that might make people uncomfortable. Right. Um, and or we, we will ignore this person's sin. Yeah, know? exactly. Yeah. So we were ready to to move to something that felt more authentic, Yeah, essentially. So that was about six years ago. You were one of the first families to yeah. come over and help us with the work of revitalization. Anything you want to share about that time? I don't have anything in mind in particular, but if you have something that'll be entertaining, feel free to share it. I just remember the first Sunday, this was the Sunday before you came. Okay. Uh, we sang happy birthday oh, to wow. one of the older members of the church. In the service we did. In the service. Yeah. And uh, it was a trip. Yeah. And then you showed up and we never did it again. <laughs> yeah. Uh, then I showed up and we started singing 10 songs every That's right. Sunday. Old dirges. <laughs> Old dirges. <laughs> we used to do uh, three prayers, mm-hmm. 10 songs. You, I preached like an you hour were like, 20. I'm going to find out who the real Christians oh, are. Oh, man. It was and brutal. It's because they're going to leave through attrition if they're yeah. not genuinely re- regenerate. 
that was when um, I was trying to train people how to do things. So I did everything on a Sunday morning. I remember. I really feel bad for you guys. That was tough. I didn't leave the singing. Thankfully. (laughs) Uh, Somebody told me last night that the members of our church are going to pitch in and give me vocal lessons, like pay for somebody to give me vocal (laughs) lessons. (laughs) What up? There are other ways to waste money. Yeah, that's right. Okay, so um, you've been a part of two church revitalizations. Yes, that's true. Yeah. What, thoughts on that? Two I, very different experiences. I don't know that I, I don't know that I've ever thought of that other one as a revitalization. I think of it more of as an extended funeral. Oh gosh, that's brutal. Uh, but yeah. that was what the attempt was, right? Yeah, it was an attempted revitalization. Um, but the Lord does the work of revitalization, and if He doesn't, yeah. it's not a revitalization. That's and right. So, yeah, because there's nothing about what what happened at the second church that you were helping versus what happened here that we could take credit that they can't take credit for, right? Exactly. Yeah. It's a crazy story. Uh, So I came back from the pastoral internship at CHBC. Which you did after spending about three years with us at Sixth Avenue. You helped us get to basically a place of health, Mm -hmm. to the place where you could in good conscience leave and go up to DC. I thought we were never going to see you again. Just because you're the kind of guy that people want to snatch up and, and put on the team. And I was sad to see you go, happy that you would have that opportunity. But well, then you ended up coming back. I did. So I left in 2019, okay. came back uh, basically nine months later, around the time COVID was getting crazy. So you did the CHBC internship, and then you were on staff at Nine Marks for a few months. Yes. Okay. Yeah, working in a, a research role primarily. So I came back, and... Uh, so my wife's health factors into this story. So she, when we were in DC for the internship, she'd been progressively getting sicker and sicker uh, and sicker. Nobody had any idea what was going on with her. She had uh, something wrong with her whole GI tract, malabsorption. She had scurvy, like a pirate. Yeah, right. Uh, which is so rare that they didn't believe it at first. Right, they don't, yeah. You don't see that anymore. Yeah, we all get enough vitamin C. Yeah, and she was taking... Uh, multivitamins daily to yeah. try and fix it. She just couldn't absorb it. She she couldn't absorb it. Yeah. Well, we go to uh, DC and she gets this appointment at Georgetown and they were like, oh, so you're here for the intestinal transplant? Oh. Uh, and she was like, I, I didn't know that was a thing. What are you talking about? And and they got, basically they identified her as a candidate for this intestinal transplant program. Her organs had died, more or less, stopped functioning. Uh, they had to remove most of them. And uh, so she's in this workup to have this multivisceral transplant. It's a couple million dollar procedure that is puts most people's entire lives on hold yeah. for years to try and work through. And uh, so at the time that she was getting the workup for this and we were thinking, okay, we're going to go through this and it's going to be hard. Uh, we thought, well, let's go back to Alabama and just have a break yeah. where we don't visit doctors. We don't, we've gotten pretty burned out mm-hmm. on hospitals and doctors. Um, I, I was always pretty skeptical about their ability to do what they claimed they could do. Yeah. You know? Cause Catherine um, has a very, it's not, it's, it's very atypical. That's right. And we'll um, come back and talk more about what it's been like with Catherine and stuff. So we go back to Huntsville to basically just have like a, like a rest yeah. from all this medical stuff thinking, a okay, medical sabbatical. we'll go take this sabbatical <laughs> yeah. back in Huntsville, see family, chill out for a while, not be in DC, which was going crazy from COVID. And then when we want to get listed, we can go through all that Mm -hmm. listed for the organs. So we come back and uh, we realize, all right, we got to be near the hospital in Huntsville, Mm -hmm. uh, near her doctor and near her family. Being back in Sixth Avenue, which is a 40 minute drive. Yeah, that's right. Is, was pretty much off the table. So we started looking for a church in Huntsville. 
So I knew of a brother uh, named Daniel Weaver who had just taken a position as a pastor at a, a small Baptist church in Huntsville. Uh, his brother-in-law had gone through the internship right after me. Okay. So that's how I heard about him. Yeah. And uh, and we joined and... Uh, Round two. Yeah. It was very similar to Sixth Avenue in the early days. It, it was a small congregation, uh, mostly older people and close families. Mm-hmm. And they hadn't really had anybody teach them the Bible in like 30 years. Yeah. They had had an older pastor who basically they ended up taking care of more than he was shepherding them. Uh, I don't even think he was preaching much uh, the last few years that he was around, if at all. And it had kind of turned into what you see in a lot of small Southern Baptist churches, which is this social club where people get together and they sing the sent- sentimental old hymns that they like and do special music. Yeah. Well, Daniel comes in. He's a former professor at, at a seminary and starts teaching the Bible. Yeah. And we were really encouraged and we thought we were seeing some fruit. Uh, I helped with an uh, evening Bible study. Um, and this went on for about nine months. And about nine months in, we learned that the deacons of the church had essentially worked through their channels kind of behind the scenes and conspired to have Daniel get fired. Yeah. They they came to him and said, you can either resign or we're going to fire you. Right. Uh, we have all the votes we need. We didn't even know they had a problem with his teaching. Yeah. Um, and so I, <laughs> I counseled Daniel to not to resign, but to, but to go for, you know, a member's meeting yeah. to stand before the congregation and, and make them say the accusations that they were, yeah. they were bringing about him. And he agreed. And, uh, it was brutal mm-hmm. um, just to see. The word you used when you talked to me about it was demonic. Yeah, it was It was interesting. So the, the deacons made their accusations, which were all baseless. Essentially, they were, they, were, they were rejecting the biblical teaching that they were receiving. Mm-hmm. And they were directing it at Daniel because he was yeah. the voice they heard it from. And if you know Daniel, you know it's not like he was in there like kicking teeth in. He's a gentle, sweet, that, patient brother. That brother is about as gentle and patient as you can get. Yeah, that's right. Uh, far beyond my abilities in that area. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I, I've only seen, I mean, I'm a reformed guy. I'm not a speaking in tongues, charismatic type. You know that. And uh, mm-hmm. I've only seen what I could describe as demonic activity twice uh, in my life. Once was outside the abortion mill mm-hmm. and once was that business meeting. Yeah. Um, and it was this, cons- this group within the church, this constituent within the church that was very closely connected to the deacons um, that, yeah, I can't describe it any other way. Their behaviors, their mannerisms, the way they were mumbling and rocking and, and laughing during my plea for them to follow the teachings of Jesus in Matthew 18 and like actually if they were if they were believing him to be in sin to have yeah. first brought it to him mm-hmm. and bring others rather than just ambushing him at a members right. meeting yeah um and it went very poorly i think in the end three or four of us voted to have daniel stay and that were the those were the four families that joined after he became pastor right and all of the old guard uh had him removed um very and they were celebratory at the end of the night yeah um so yeah, that's that's the perfect opposite of what we what we've experienced here at Sixth Avenue. So then after after that, you know, we stay in touch throughout all of this. Mm-hmm. You look for a couple of other churches. You find one next, like pretty close to your house. They do a big Fourth of, Fourth of July. Shindig. I was burned out. 
Yeah. I needed, I couldn't do it anymore. Yeah. I couldn't sit in another church and think of ways to like prod the pastor to be more faithful to scripture <laughs> and like help him think through what yeah. a church is. And I was, I needed to be fed. Yeah. So I basically came crawling back to Sixth Avenue. <laughs> like, we were so happy to have please, you back, brother. Please take yeah. me as a member and just uh, help my soul because yeah. I was tired. Yeah. It was it was a hard couple months doing that. And then a hard, uh, not more than a couple months after that, I was talking with our, one of our other pastors about this on the way to lunch today. Mm-hmm. He said he wanted to hear you talk about your sort of wilderness experience with ministry because... You know, you you were full-time CrossFit, and then you were here, and then it seemed like you were going down the path to full-time vocational ministry, mm-hmm. and then uh, and then you ended up in this place where you were living off of fundraising for Catherine's organ stuff, Yep. but then you were also, like, desiring to be in some kind of ministry, but just every door that seemed like it was opening before you would just shut in your face. Uh, anything you want to share about that time? Yeah, uh, that was probably the the darkest time in my life. Um, I had I had gone to CHBC with the aspiration of you know, being better equipped to be a pastor somewhere mm-hmm. full time. Sure. Um, I've been a uh, a, lay elder, a here. lay elder here, and you were very good. But I wanted it to be my job. I'd, right, I'd yeah. always looked at you guys somewhat enviously, like I got to go back to my day job. And right. Then what right. I really wanted to do was be teaching the Bible full time. Yeah. And to be fair, that's what we wanted for you too. Yeah. You know? And yeah. Uh, it just, you know, the Lord had other plans for me. So I thought, well, CHBC is going to be the stepping stone. That's what we all thought. For that. Yeah. Uh, and it didn't pan out. And in large part, um, you know, my my wife's health made it one of those situations where even if I'd been offered a position of being a senior pastor somewhere, I couldn't in good conscience right. do that because I had so much of a, a a pull on me and my resources that had to go to my family. So I thought, well, maybe I could be an assistant pastor somewhere. And uh, then we realized we had to be in Huntsville. Mm-hmm. Um, there are not a lot of churches in Huntsville that would ever think of hiring me as an assistant pastor. Yeah. Uh, and and a lot of that's just the the state of the churches here. Um, and you so knock on some Armenian Baptist pastors. Right. Door. Hi. <laughs> yes. Hi. Uh, you may have seen me on Defend and Confirm. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I'm also nationally known as a bigot. That's I was right. Fired for <laughs> that's which right. we'll come back to. Yeah. Do you want to hire uh, me? Yeah. So great resume. Yeah. Well, and and uh, and that was interesting too because I'm I'm thinking okay, well maybe it's just, it's just maybe it's the Lord does not want me to be a pastor right now, so I'm going to have to get some secular job. Uh, at this point, too, I my skepticism of the idea of Catherine getting this multivisceral transplant had 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 basically been vindicated. Uh, more and more, we were seeing evidence that it's a really bad idea. Mm-hmm. She wouldn't survive the surgery. Yeah, uh, she could go get this transplant and spend six months in a hospital just to die at the end. Yeah, or we could just keep on keeping on with the interventional stuff that she's got, and yeah. she may not live a long life, but it'll be at home yeah. and she'll have time with us. So, uh, I thought, all right, I got to get a job. And, uh, that when you're like one of the early people to get canceled for being a bigot, mm-hmm. bef- I mean, I, I don't want to brag, but I got canceled before it was cool. Yeah. Let's, let's pause right here and let's talk about that. Okay. So you worked for CrossFit. Yep. You, you were basically like one of Greg's like right-hand men, right? Greg yeah. Glassman. Yeah, so Greg Glassman, CEO and founder of CrossFit. Uh, I worked for CrossFit for 10 years, and in the last few years, I worked directly for him. Yeah, that's right. And um, basically, 
uh, Greg knew you were a Christian. He was very libertarian. So mm-hmm. kind of hands off, believe what you want to believe, that yep. sort of thing. And then there was an incident wherein a local CrossFit gym, not local here, where was it, Indianapolis or something like that? Yeah, Indianapolis. Yeah. Uh, they, were, they were being canceled, essentially, for not uh, hosting a Pride event. Um, and you tweeted support for that gym. Is that right? Yeah, that's exactly right. Yeah. Um, I basically I, said, uh, I, you know, I, on my private social media, like I've told you, I wore two hats. Yeah. I use this as sort of a, I'm a spokesperson for CrossFit. And I would also use it for my own very uh, nefarious personal agenda. Yeah. And, <laughs> nefarious uh, gospel agenda. That's right. I, I was I was <laughs> not in any way uh, hi, hiding that or, or yeah. shy about that. I posted stuff about abortion and stuff about the gospel and the prosperity gospel all the time. Yeah. Uh, well, in this instance, there was a gym that was basically being targeted because they declined to host a pride event. And uh, I just said, hey, I support this gym. Pride's a sin. Mm-hmm. And they then saw a bigger fish and turned on me and demanded I be fired. Yeah, uh, they being? The shrill LGBTQ mafia on Twitter in the 2018s. Yeah, that's right. Which was a, a force more powerful than most in the world at that time. Yeah. You got fired in what, an hour, two hours? Oh, uh, it was a few hours. Yeah, yeah. I remember you, you emailed me that morning your draft of the tweet. And I thought, oh, you know, I mean... My only thought would be like, what what will your boss think about this? And mm-hmm. you texted me back or emailed me back and you said, oh no, Greg's a libertarian. Yeah. Like he's happy to let me say what I want to say. And, and then you called me and you were like, I've been let go. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I was wrong. Yeah. <laughs> Misread that room. Yeah. I mean, it was everywhere. Yeah. It was, it was everywhere. Uh, what was, I mean, what was that like being canceled? Uh, you know, it, it was briefly stressful and then... Uh, after a couple of days, I, re- I recognized it as probably one of the best things that could have happened. Mm. I already didn't want to be in that job anymore. Mm. Uh, part of that was just being a lay elder and wanting to be in the ministry full-time. Like, yeah. I want to teach the Bible full-time. And it was just too good a job to quit. Yeah. Especially with a wife with health problems and oh, like yeah. great insurance. Oh, yeah. They're paying you a California salary to live in Alabama. Exactly. So. Yeah. Uh, there would have been no way that I would have willingly left that job. Yeah. Um, and so for the Lord to have the plans that he did. He kind of had to shake you off the branch, yeah. Yeah, it worked out. So yeah, that made me unemployable. <laughs> <laughs> Back to that. Yeah. yeah. So, but it also gave you a superpower because <clears throat> we've had a couple of conversations since then where your answer to me has been like, what are they going to do? Cancel yeah. me? What's the worst that yeah. can happen? <laughs> right. But you're basically unemployable. You were thinking about, like, what job can I get that will accommodate my very ill wife? And then yeah. you finally found one. Yeah, so I ended up getting sort of a, a trainee position as a, a an appraiser for commercial properties, commercial real estate. And this was a great opportunity to, like, have a career in a field where there's almost no public face to my mm-hmm. job. So yeah. it didn't matter that I'd been fired a couple of years ago for being a bigot. Yeah, And uh, it was just really... As good as that opportunity was, it was really hard for me. Mm-hmm. Um, it was it was a line of work that I had no emotional or spiritual interest in. Yeah, it was very it was pragmatic. Like I got to put food on the table, and I need health insurance. This is a way I can do that. Yeah, and uh, I I basically was like two people having that argument every day. Yeah, so one side of me was saying this is miserable. 
why do I hate my job so much? And the other side of me was saying, suck it up. People have had bad jobs for centuries just to put food on the table. Yeah. You're, you sound like a, a whiny millennial yeah, that's right. who needs fulfillment when really you just need to buckle down and do your job. Mm. And I did that uh, for about a year. And uh, in the midst of that, I was, I was dealing with a lot of anxiety related to my wife's health. She'd been She'd been doing so poorly that she'd been put on palliative care. We talked about hospice for a while. Uh, the palliative care doctor at UAB had said, like, you may have six to eight months to live. So we expected her to, to just be dead soon, and we're preparing for that. Well, around the time I took this job, she went into remission. She started doing great. Mm -hmm. She came off of the palliative medications. She was able to drive again. She was taking care of the kids again. And whereas you might think that would give me a sense of like peace and like relief, yeah. I had the opposite. Uh, I felt an enormous sense of like the rug's going to get pulled out from under me at any point. Yeah, This isn't real. She still has no intestines. She's still dependent on a, a lot of medical devices and drugs to keep her alive. It can't go on forever. And so I, I suffered with a lot of anxiety and fear of this is at any, at any day now, this is going to go bad. Yeah. Um, and it's going to give our kids a false sense of like mom's healthy again. And so between those two things, uh, I struggled a lot and it got really bad. Um, I started struggling with sleep. I started, uh, drinking to go to sleep. I started finding myself being more and more prayerless, mm -hmm. wasn't reading my Bible. And at the worst of it, I really genuinely thought, maybe I'm not a Christian. And maybe this was just God's way of like preventing a, a hypocrite from filling a pulpit somewhere mm. that would lead people astray. And Which is not the way a Christian thinks. Well, at the time, that didn't dawn <laughs> yeah, on me. Right, yeah. At the time, I thought, I, I guess maybe I'm not really a Christian. And so yeah. I remember for a, a, a couple weeks, I would wake up and I would pray all right, God, you've, you've seen the way I'm living. Like, I don't, this is like my one prayer today. I'm not going to do it again. You see how little I read my Bible. You see where my heart is. Like, I'm just consumed with anxiety. I'm miserable. I don't desire you. You just, just let me go. Let me go. And I'll, I'll just be one of those statistics, you know, people mm -hmm. who, who, who once claimed to be Christians who we now know are, are, we're never, we're never Christians to begin with. And so I prayed that way. Uh, a couple weeks would go by and I'd pray it again and said, all right, Lord, just let me go. I won't pretend anymore. And eventually I prayed that way enough that it kind of hit me like I'm still praying. Right. <laughs> I'm still asking God to let me go. I, he must just be keeping me. Mm. I, must, I must really be a Christian and he's going to get me through this. Mm. And I quit praying that, and I, I just trusted him to carry me through it. Uh, and, and that, like I said, was probably the lowest I've been. It was probably the darkest period of time in my life. And, uh, and he saw me through it. And it really is a, a testimony to, to the Lord keeping us and it being nothing in our own strength and our own power that, that preserves our salvation. He's, yeah. he's marked me. His Holy Spirit sealed me. And I know that not just because it's written in my Bible, but I got to experience it. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Well, thanks for being so honest. Mm -hmm. And uh, I'm saying using this word in the best possible sense, not the trite 
sense of the word, but for being transparent. Mm-hmm. You know, really not just with me, but with dozens of people on the internet. <laughs> you hear that, all ten of you? <laughs> all ten of you. Uh, and so now, uh, by God's grace, you are an assistant pastor at Sixth Avenue Community Church. How has that been? Uh, wonderful. So good, just like we planned. Yeah. So so having the opportunity to do what I had had wanted to do for so long, you know, on the other side of that dark valley, uh, I don't think I ever would have appreciated mm. having this job that that way. Um, it's been <laughs> perhaps more of the benefit to my own soul than to the the people I shepherd. Yeah. So, well, I don't know if that's true, but it's been good for everybody. Sometimes yeah. I wonder. But <laughs> you just taught a uh, a class on political theology for Sixth Avenue that was absolutely fantastic. It was so good. How good was it? Uh, it was really good. <laughs> <laughs> um, but that leads us to defend and confirm. Yeah, uh, which we we think we're going to record that as a series. Your Sunday school class. Because yes. essentially, uh, the the rise of theonomy or theonomy esque theologies, and particularly Reformed Baptist circles, is something that I've been pretty concerned with for a while. And when I started having conversations with our church members, a few of our church members about it, and I realized like the tentacles of this stuff is it's even making its way into our congregation. I thought there's nobody better to teach a class on this than Russell, and you did a great job, and it was so well received and it was so helpful that uh, we think we're, and now we are in a place by God's providence where we can do more defend and confirm. So we're going to do that for our next series. Is that right? That's Lord the plan, willing. Lord willing. Yeah. So be on the lookout for that. Mm-hmm. Now, speaking of uh, defend and confirm, let's let's talk about that a little bit. Um, first of all, we used to be on a podcast called Defend and Confirm. Now you're a guest on a podcast that I do called Room for Nuance. <laughs> Russell, what has happened to me? How f- Far I have fallen. Yeah. So you know me better than anyone. Uh, what 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 do you think? Have I gone liberal? <laughs> I don't know. I hear the the word nuance. Yeah. And I just assume, like, is Russ Moore behind that curtain over there? <laughs> is he pulling pulling your strings? You know, have he you is. sold out to Big Eva? Yeah. Uh, I just I hate that that's the state of discourse in evangelical circles. And I you know I chalk most of that up just to the way social media works. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, it is a, it is a product of social media. And I think the more time you spend on social media, the more you learn to think that way and talk that way. Uh, and the more you pull back from it, the more you get, I think a better perception of what real people really think. Yeah. And there really is like a, uh, an effect where like, there's this amplification of a very small number of voices that the, the most shrill, the most the hottest takes, the most aggressive voices tend to get the most attention. Yeah. Uh, whereas, you know, the average person who's who's listening to a podcast like this can genuinely benefit from it uh, and appreciate it. And, and there could be tens of people listening to this who are being tens. blessed by it. And yeah. if there's one guy on the internet who says, "Oh, nuance," yeah, sounds like something a liberal would say. Uh, my advice would just be to ignore that. Yeah, thanks, man. Yeah. I'm doing my best. Good. The nasty gram emails and the uh, anonymous letters are making it a little more difficult, but I think we can, I think we'll do it. I should stop sending those. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> You're trying to help me. Thank you, brother. Okay. I love you. Um, so Defending Confirm, it started with uh, an apologetics class that you taught at Sixth Avenue many moons ago. Mm-hmm. And then for the last class we did, we were together, we, we co taught it. Mm-hmm. Um, 
And people really loved it and appreciated it. That, that's actually what I love about Defend and Confirm, the podcast, is it's a very, very different format than this one. Uh-huh, that's right. It really is. I think of it like a Sunday school. But like a higher level It's Sunday like school. a higher level like yeah. Sunday school where you can pause and rewind and listen yeah. to that again. Yeah. And it's it's uh, it has that format though. Like we're going to teach this topic. We're going to break it down into digestible sections yeah. that you can review and listen to, to to better understand some topic that you need to know as a Christian. Yeah. And the feedback that that I've received about us, whether it's us doing street evangelism at a pro-abortion rally or evangelism at the abortion clinic or teaching a Sunday school together or even doing private pastoral counseling together is that we our, our personalities, our dispositions, our giftings complement each other really well. Mm. That's what I've heard. Like yin and yang? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I'm, you know, which one are you? Are you yin or are you yang? I'm definitely the white one. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> um, and uh, I think the story of Defending Confirm is it it, it didn't get very uh, broad exposure, but it was very deeply helpful for mm-hmm. the people who did encounter it. I've heard right. stories of, uh, and I'm just trying to, I'm trying to talk about it objectively. I'm not trying to brag uh Again, we, I don't think we ever got more than 5,000 downloads on an episode, so not much to brag about. But uh, whether it was our series on like critical theory, which certain pastors told me that they used to to work through together as an elder board mm-hmm. during really difficult, confusing times, mm-hmm. or our stuff on CPM, DMM, uh, hearing that it was being used to train missionaries uh, on the field or preparing to go to the field. So so again, it, it, you know, it wasn't 100,000 downloads a week, but the stories we heard of 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 the way God used it so encouraging. Oh yeah. Yeah. Which is why we've always as even as we stopped recording for a time have been very willing to like go back and do it again because who we, knows what the Lord may do. We've stopped defend and confirm and then started back up like multiple times yeah, now. That's right. I don't think it'll ever die. May it never die. <laughs> yeah. So be on the lookout. We're going to be talking about uh, political th- theology in mm-hmm. general, and we're going to try to get to specifically hanging out on theonomy. Yeah. Yeah, and we might even, because I, I doubt all the listeners of Room for Nuance listen to Defend and Confirm, so we might even come back and do another episode with you on theonomy in mm-hmm. particular. Yeah. So one of the weird things about when we met was we, um, I, I remember there was one day we were talking, and you're like, oh, I got to go do this interview I'm doing this documentary. And I was like, yeah, that's crazy. I'm doing a documentary too, right? And then you were like, what's yours? And I said, oh, mine's on the prosperity gospel. And you were like, I'm doing a documentary on the prosperity. And then we found out that independently of one another, which is really insane. I mean, I think by this point, we had really become friends. Mm -hmm. And we were one city away, like uh, Brandon Kimber, the the guy who produced the American gospel, um, had independently contacted us. And we were both doing stuff with him on that project. Yeah. Talk about your experience with American Gospel, maybe first with a documentary, and then um, uh, what's the name of the show on the AGTV app? The Burgers? Voyage of Life. No. I think that's Is what it Is it Voyage called. of Life? The Burgers Voyage of Life. Which comes from the title of a series of paintings uh, from the painter who I'm forgetting the name of now. Monet? Mm-mm. Hudson School. Uh, Manet. No, Northeastern painters. Uh, Manet. Very Protestant influence in their painting. Come on. Thomas Cole. Thomas Cole thank you. There it is. Okay. <clears throat> wow, I'm really glad we got there. Whew. 
All right, so talk about the American gospel stuff, because um, my part of the American gospel was pretty small. Your part, it seems, was pretty central, and I think, brother, it's encouraged, and I don't think I'm exaggerating here, it's encouraged millions of people all over the world. Yeah, without a doubt. Um, yeah, first of all, it's crazy that we were both in that documentary <laughs> and friends at the same time and didn't know we were being... <laughs> yeah, pretty awesome. that documentary. Yeah. Uh, the way I found out about it, it's funny. I was on Facebook, as I often was when yeah. I worked for CrossFit, <laughs> and I saw this trailer for this documentary that was just, just blasting prosperity preaching. Yeah. And I was so excited yeah. that I shared it, and I had like 6,000 Facebook friends. I'd maxed out or whatever it is, and so hundreds of people are watching and liking this. Yeah. And then Brandon Kimber, the director, messages me and goes, who are you and why are you sharing all my stuff? Yeah. And uh, so I got to know him just But like in a about, friendly way. Oh, yeah. He was excited. Like, yeah. this is the most people that have seen my little... He, at this point, he didn't have a documentary. He was just right, putting together trailers right, right. of little clips of things that he developed to try and just put out feelers sure, and, and get yeah. some marketing. And uh, and it he was excited. And so we started to talk and he he needed like... He needed like the token sick person, which yeah. you always need when you yeah. do prosperity stuff. Like yeah. somebody who is suffering and recognized it as, as, as part of God's providence and his will and is thinking theologically well about it. And so he had, uh, he had some people in mind that I'd recommended to him who were kind of famous in the evangelical world and, and they couldn't do it. So eventually a couple months later, he came back around and said, hey, your wife's pretty sick, right? <laughs> I was like, oh like, yeah, yep. <laughs> she's she's definitely sick. Yeah. Uh, and he said, well, let's try and use her. And uh, and so Catherine was a big part of the first documentary as uh, as just a, a flesh and blood example of what it looks like to live out the kind of theology of sickness that the Bible teaches. Yeah. And that was hugely encouraging to a lot of people. Um, yeah. My role in that documentary is basically to sit next to her and nod. Uh, so, no, brother, you gave a lot of very expert theological commentary. If if that's the case, I don't remember very well. I'm yeah. thinking more of the second documentary where I know you did that. I, you did that as well. In the I had. A, I feel like I had a bigger role in the second one. Okay. Um. So, in but regardless, it's it is wild to me how the Lord's used those movies. Oh. Uh. I I can't go really anywhere on earth without people coming over and saying, "Hey." I, are you from American Gospel? Mm -hmm. That movie has saved like five of my family members oh, who yeah. were in this prosperity cult and yep. I shared it with them and now we're all, praise God, we're all saved. I was in Portland for four days two weeks ago. I met two people who said that they got saved from yep. watching the American Gospel. Grocery stores, uh, other yep. churches, like out in public. It's just Ed Moore wild. went to London and a lady came up and she said, oh, you're a Nine Marks pastor. I know of another Nine Marks pastor. He FaceTimes me just so she can tell me I got saved from watching the American gospel. So yeah. yeah praise God. It's crazy. Uh, yeah. I, I mean, I don't, I can't think of anything else in my short lifetime that's had anywhere near that impact. Yeah. At least, at least initially. Yeah. yeah. I mean, when it hit Netflix, that's when things really started going crazy. Yeah. 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 And then Netflix ruined it. <laughs> yeah. They, I think they kept it up for six months. I, I, I feel like Netflix was really like at that point in Netflix, Netflix's history, they were, that was when they were first getting a lot of uh, of pressure from 
conservative culture yeah. because of some of their choices of things that they had platforms. Yeah. And it was like the bone they were throwing the Christians. Yeah. Like we'll put we'll put some Christian stuff yeah. up for six months. Praise God. Hey, you know. Lord used it. That's right. Yeah. So then you guys had um, a little bit of a TV show. So the American, if, if for our viewers who don't know, the American Gospel documentary was produced by a company that then invested in basically building what what it would be like a reformed Netflix, right? Yeah. Like you can go on there and watch all the Ligonier documentaries mm-hmm. and you can go watch a bunch of really good teaching series. I have a series on there for the Lord's Prayer. And one of the, uh, one of the things that they did was uh, a show right? We call it a show. Yeah. Following your family on your journey through, uh, yeah, your Catherine struggles with health mm-hmm. and, and, and all of that. And how many episodes were there? Do we know? Five, Ethan? Ethan? Eight. Eight. Okay. That's more than I remember. And people loved it. I mean, people were really encouraged yeah. about it. Um, was it, was it weird opening up your life to people like that? Oh, I mean, yeah. Because you did it a little bit in the documentary, but it's very different than it's, saying there's going to be a whole TV show about it's me. very different. Or us, yeah. Uh, very different. Um, it, it's it's almost like it, it would be easier to just like put on a GoPro and never turn it off. Right. Because there's a certain amount of like being followed around with a camera where you just, you just get used to it and you just have to be normal. Yeah. But when somebody's there filming like periodically, just getting updates like... You know, I'm going to film you all day today and tomorrow. Yeah. And then a few weeks go by and it happens again. There's, there's a sense in which like it's, it's hard to, to communicate the, data, the realities of day-to-day life yeah. as a Christian. And so my, I always felt weird because I felt like people are going to watch this and they're going to think we're like super Christians. Right. Because whenever... Like you weren't here when I yelled at my kid earlier. That's right. right. Yeah, yeah. Whenever Ethan would come over to film, like I'd be going through some interview questions that he mentioned thinking like, okay, what's been going on with us? How can I answer this? Uh, and if the, just the fact that he was coming over to film meant it was a good day. Yeah. Right. Like right. the days where I'd be like, Hey, we can't film today. Yeah. Well, of course those don't get filmed. Right. So Which means people don't really see a big part of your life. That's right. Uh, and so I do think they got to see enough that it was really encouraging to a lot of people. Yeah. Um, and I think I'm thankful to the Lord for that. Uh, it, it's it's still hard for me to watch. It's always hard for me to watch myself I can't even imagine. Yeah. recorded on anything. Yeah. Um, like, like going back and listening to your I'm going to struggle to listen to this podcast. Yeah, that's right. Um, but I, yeah, a lot of people were blessed by it. And, uh, yeah, the, just the sacrifice of opening up our lives and our home to, to do that, um, as hard as it was, I think it was worth it and I'd, I'd do it again. Yeah, that's right. So you mentioned Ethan coming over to record. Let mm-hmm. me embarrass Ethan. Ethan is one of the people behind the scenes, uh, on the audio. We have Luke Hill. Say hi, Luke. Nobody will really hear it. <laughs> wow, that's Luke. That's why he's not in front of the camera. That's right. And then we have Can't Ethan. Who, did you record for the first American Gospel? So if you've appreciated the second American Gospel and the third, which is coming out soon, you recorded for that as well? Yeah. If you've appreciated Defend and Confirm, and if you appreciate Room for Nuance, uh, you can thank Ethan Winslet for always being faithful to come and record and basically do our whole studio setup. Without Ethan, we would still be, uh, you would just be putting up your phone in your back room like we used to do. That's right. Yeah, that's right. So thank you, brother. Yeah, man. (laughs) All right, so. Really scraping the bottom of the barrel with this guest. Yeah, what else is there to talk about? No, um, you, uh, has there been any negative response to 
like your show or your stuff on the on on American Gospel? Like, do you? Not get, really. Uh, praise you, God. You know why? Because you're not on Twitter it's, to see it. No, it's a feature of the prosperity gospel. It's a weird. You don't interact with people who. That's right. Yeah. So every every cult is a little different. That's um, true. And yeah. a lot of them, particularly the prosperity gospel, have sort of a standing order. Yeah. That critics of the prosperity gospel are from Satan, and the way to to respond to them is to ignore them. Yeah. So yeah, very little at all. What what made you? Was it Catherine's health that made you kind of get fired up about the prosperity gospel? <laughs> in part, um, in part, it was a little bit of personal experience. So I didn't really know what it was. Yeah, uh, I'm. This is another weird thing about me. So when when I read the Bible and was saved, I didn't go through a lot of the phases that people go through in their. You know, the typical Reformed Baptist was like, "Oh, I grew up a Baptist," and then realized that I wasn't really a Christian and I got saved. And then I started getting into reformed theology and I had a cage stage and then yada, yada. When I read my Bible, I walked away with a reformed understanding of Christianity. Right. Yeah. Like I, at least soteriology. Yeah, that's right. Um, you went through a cage stage with ecclesiology. Yes. Yeah. I was a cage stage congregationalist. <laughs> yes. I, yeah. It was great. It was wild. Um, but no, so I, so I didn't understand a lot of like folk American Arminianism. I didn't understand prosperity gospel right. stuff. I didn't really get any of that. Yeah. And so as a, as a younger Christian, my wife was having health problems and we would sometimes run into things where people would want to pray for her and they would pray like, Lord, we know you're going to heal her. Mm. And I was like, do, do we? <laughs> <laughs> Jinx. Uh, and I, I just felt that that was wrong. And I didn't understand why they would say that. And these are people who I, I was kind of deferring to them. Like I hadn't been a Christian that long. So right. I thought, well, you must know better than me, but yeah. there's probably some verse I haven't gotten. I'm to not yet. seeing that in my Bible. Yeah. So, uh, then I was, you know, listening to some music and trying to, you know, as I was, as I was starting to hear more things in popular secular music that I just was feeling like, I can't listen to this. Uh, I started listening to Christian music and I listened to some Christian music that I thought was pretty cool. And then I'm, like I'm gonna Google them. It was Bethel, yeah, and I'm yeah. and I'm looking at their website, thinking, what is what is going on here? Mm -hmm. This is not. I don't think this is Christianity. Yeah, uh, I'd read uh, Walter Martin's Kingdom of the Cults at that point. Yeah, uh, very yeah, excellent, resource. very excellent resource for dealing with the cults. And I started, you know, he doesn't write about the prosperity gospel, but I started seeing it as just another one of these cults. Mm -hmm. It was very helpful as a as an analogy of sorts to think of them like, oh. This is how I view Mormons. This is how I view Jehovah's Witnesses. This is just another cult. And uh, it started opening my eyes to that around the time that I stumbled on that clip from Brandon. Mm. And uh, it was, yeah, it was good. Yeah. So uh, let's let's talk about Catherine's health. And what I would like to do probably in the future is for us to come back and maybe just do a whole episode on this because I think there are a lot of Christians who struggle with... Um, yeah, long-term illness mm -hmm. and all the junk that comes with that. Uh, but uh, what's the name of the disease that Catherine has? Ehlers-Donlis or something like that? No, uh, it's probably a vascular type of Ehlers-Donlis. Okay. But they don't really know. Yeah. She's got um, some weird thing where basically her immune system is trying to kill her. It's it's somehow an immune system thing. It's somehow a tissue thing. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, it's not real clear. You know, she's been, she has like four different diagnoses. So she's got yeah. a diagnosis of uh, Ehlers-Danlos, uh, stiff person syndrome, which is autoimmune, 
she has a diagnosis of hereditary hereditary angioedema, which is a immunological thing as well. And like one of these in a person would be kind of rare. Yeah. Uh, when you see all those together, it just means that there's it's just some other disease they don't have a name for. Right. Yeah. Um, and they're just throwing different titles. Which doesn't at feel it. like it can be true. Yeah. We live in an age where we make everything controllable mm -hmm. by defining it, yep. labeling it. Yeah, spend yeah, and I've part of the journey of having a rare disease and being in the academic hospital systems of the world is figuring out really quick how much doctors dislike seeing things they don't have an explanation for. Yeah, which is um, just a very human thing. Of course, it's not good, but no. And so we've just kind of settled. We're just resigned to the fact that nobody knows what she's got. They're no. not going to know. Um, sure. Maybe in a couple of years, some NIH researcher will. We we know other people who have the same set of symptoms and diagnoses. Yeah. Uh, and they've been through NIH's testing and they don't know what they have. Huh. So, And we know it wasn't caused by the COVID vaccine, right? Because it was... <laughs> well, she didn't get it, so... Oh, okay. <laughs> and moving on. Yes. Um, but I'm, I'm still glad we're doing this, though. Uh-huh. Uh, is... So how long has she had it? Uh, she started or having problems symptoms, as yeah. an infant. Okay. Uh, even as a newborn, she spent a couple weeks in the hospital with like intractable, intractable respiratory problems oh, no. and infections. So she was sickly when you met her. Uh, she was she was at the time I met her uh, doing well, but had had periods in her life where yeah. she'd had a lot of health issues, which is kind of what it's like, right? Like bad, and then like a period of doing good, and then yeah. back to bad. Yeah. Um, but she was better when I met her. And when we got married and then we had our first child and her health started to go downhill yeah. after that pretty quickly. Have you <clears throat> um, wrestled with any feelings of bitterness? Like, oh man, when I met you, you were really healthy. And then we got married and our lives are like bonded together forever. And then, you know, you kind of spiraled down into this really pit of health issues. Oh, for sure. Um, you know, I, I, I try my best to stamp that out. So when I catch myself thinking bitter thoughts, it's not ever towards her. It's, it's often right. towards God. Like he, why did, you know, mm -hmm. I got married to a healthy woman and within a couple of years of us being married, I was taking care of her. Yeah. Like, God, why would you do this to us? Um, and when I catch myself having those feelings, I, I do my best to stamp it out. Um, I think it was Luther who said, you can, you, uh, you can't keep a bird from landing in your hair, but you can keep them from building a nest. Uh, it's a useful yeah. illustration. Like when yeah. the thought pops into your head, like get it out. Yeah, um, good, brother. Because the bitterness of of just of comparison, just this comparing my life to uh, to other people's lives is just so fruitless. Yeah, that's only going to breed contempt and and yeah. frustration. Uh, also, I know the Lord's using it. Yeah, and even though I don't see it all the time, I I. In, you know, intellectually, I know it's for our good, yeah. for his glory. And every now and then you probably have breakthroughs where your heart yeah. can see what your mind sees as well. But there are without a doubt times when I don't see it and I don't feel it and I'm frustrated. Yeah. Uh, and I do have those lows of like, why? Yeah. Why are we going through this? Yeah. So I know that you, you talked about people uh, saying unhelpful things mm -hmm. theologically over the years, have you had anyone, uh, I guess I'll just ask it bluntly, have you ever had any, had anyone like accuse Catherine of 
uh, what's the word? Being a hypochondriac or oh, this being uh, fake? Yeah, what's the word? Because Catherine goes through cycles, you know, and sometimes she gets really close to the edge. Yeah, and then she comes back, praise God. But then, like right now, she's in a downward cycle. Yeah, have you? I mean, that's a pretty bold thing for someone to say. But mm-hmm. sometimes people can say really crazy things to people who are suffering. Yeah, have you ever experienced any of that? Yeah, what's the word for that? There's a word for it. Help me out. It starts with an M. I think somebody who thinks they're sick and they're not. No. Not hypochondriac. It's no? uh Luke, you're on the you know computer. what I'm talking about. Uh-huh. My brain is meningitis wacky right now. Uh, Munch- Munchausen's, thank you. Yes. <clears throat> I thought that was when your parents left you at home alone during I the day. I thought it's when you fell in love with your kidnapper. <laughs> oh man. Yeah. Okay, so go ahead. Can we keep that in? Yeah, please. Okay. Yeah. Uh, so. so Munchausen's, yeah. So uh, early on, for sure. So uh, again, this came from doctors Yeah. early on. So yeah. when we were in California and her health started looking really bad, um, she was sleeping all the time. She was running low-grade fevers all yeah. day long. She yeah. was having weird rashes. So she had all these signs basically in her blood work of leukemia. So they did some bone marrow biopsies and they got some weird results, but nothing like diagnostic. Yeah. And uh, so she went to Stanford and they diagnosed her with Ehlers-Danlos at Stanford. Uh, And then we moved back to Alabama and there's still like the stuff she's having is not Ehlers-Danlos stuff. Yeah. There's there's something else there. So she, she's seeing local doctors and uh, yeah, early on they were like, it's funny, even her and her internal medicine doctor, who's been her doctor for her whole life, basically, he's my doctor, really smart guy. Uh, just an old, good old country boy, uh, but used to used to run one of the local hospitals here. He said, yeah, early on, I thought it was Munchausen's. I thought yeah. you were just making it up. Um, Did you ever think that? No, because I could, I could see in her yeah. some things that were pretty unmistakable, like yeah. things you can't fake. Uh, but then later, as things got worse, uh, the, the diagnostics were obvious. Like, sure. She was getting, you know, biopsies of tissue that came back like this is not right yeah you're you have vascular something yeah um, she's getting pops on autoimmune tests with rare antibodies that should never be in you that were just yeah. flooding her system uh which is why she got on ivig for a while yeah. then she got positive for the hereditary angioedema which is measuring like these c1 esterases in your blood and you know stuff you can't fake yeah uh which was vindicating but at at that point, like we didn't care yeah, what anybody yeah, thought. Um, how, how do you respond? I mean, defensive, angry. The one time I remember it happening with a doctor was at Vanderbilt, um, and it was related to uh, she was getting some tilt table tests for a condition called uh, POTS, postural orthostatic hypertension syndrome, something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's a dysautonomia thing. Like your 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 autonomic nervous system doesn't work right. Mm-hmm. So you you lose blood pressure, you faint, you have problems with like electrolyte balance. She was having all that. So she went to this clinic that they referred her to. And we hear the doctor outside the door just like saying stuff like, oh, this girl who thinks she's got something wrong with her and I guarantee it's nothing and it's mm-hmm. another one of these. And in his defense, like there's a, there's a cluster of disorders, Ehlers-Danlos, POTS, uh, mast cell disorder. There's this group of disorders. You could put Lyme disease in there as well. They're, they're a bit on a spectrum of like, uh, the, from we have really no definitive evidence that exists all the way to like, yeah, there's actually a genetic test for this. 
And all of yeah. them seem to cluster together. And there are a lot of people yeah. for some reason within that group that have high anxiety and some hypochondria. Yeah, that's right. And so doctors have to kind of associate in their minds, oh, POTS, oh, Ehlers-Danlos. Mm -hmm. Well, I also need to be on the lookout for exaggeration. And maybe this isn't even really a sick person. Sure. And it's hard to understand what is that, what that is. Like, is it people who want to be in the hospital for attention and want IVs and want treatments so they can post it on Instagram. Mm -hmm. Are they picking these diseases because they're so intangible and it's easy to fake? Or is it that people who have these diseases legitimately uh, also have anxiety and also have a lot of like behavioral and, and psychological issues that look like Munchausen's? It, it's yeah. not really clear to anybody. Sure. But what happens with doctors- effect, it's hard to know. Exactly. Yeah. But what happens with doctors is they get kind of jaded. Right, And they yeah. see on the chart, oh, Ehlers-Danlos. It looks like we got another one of these. Yeah. And so you you start to get treated badly uh, just based on presumptions. And so uh, after that year, I think this was in the mid, probably like actually closer to like 2017, 2016, 17, Catherine wanted Ehlers-Danlos off her chart. She didn't want that diagnosis oh, anymore. Oh, yeah. Because she was like, that's not probably what I have. That's at least not what's causing the worst symptoms. Yeah. And I want people to stop looking at me like right, this. Right, right. Uh, these days, it doesn't matter, obviously. She's got so much f visibly wrong with her. I mean, she's um, missing half of her intestines, right? <laughs> right. So. Yeah, they stopped working. Uh, so uh, all that to say, like, it's sort of like with narcotics. Uh, there are people who very genuinely benefit from being on opioids. Uh -huh. And if you show up at the emergency room because you put a nail through your hand and you're on opioids, even if it's from your cancer doctor... Uh, people look at you different. Like the doctor comes in with a little bit of like a, oh. You probably just shot this nail in your finger. Yeah. yeah, you want a little extra. So yeah. you shot yourself with a nail. I mean, just things that you would never think like, who would do that? But they because they really yeah. see it, yeah. they start to see everyone that way. And as someone who's been an opioid addict, I'd shoot a nail into my oh, finger yeah. for more. <laughs> yeah, who, who wouldn't? Uh, so, so but, but when that happened, I mean, right now you're being pretty objective. And oh, calm I, and I chewed him out. Okay. I fired him on the spot. I was like, give us another doctor yeah. right now. Yeah. So as soon as he walked in the room, I said, we heard everything you said. It's extremely unprofessional. We don't trust you. Yeah. Go get another doctor. Yeah. And he Yowza. did. So one of the things that I've learned about you over the years of our friendship is that you are uh, almost educated to the point of being like a physician's assistant <laughs> because of all the research you've had to do. <laughs> With Catherine, uh, um, I mean, people probably are watching you, the way you're just firing off acronyms and all this stuff. But it, it's 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 like a cool little party trick, but it's hard earned and not pleasant. Not by necessity, here, right? yeah. Uh, yeah, lots of babysitting other people's medical decisions to make sure that they're in the best interest of my wife. Yeah, and like I, I, one of the few things I can do as a husband with an extremely ill wife and at one point child, which we haven't talked about, Campbell is educate myself thoroughly on what's going on and why the doctors are, are making the decisions they are and then looking for any literature that contradicts them and trying to put it together and make sure they're making the best choices. Yeah. And so, yeah, not, not like a hobby, but like this is a way I can feel like I have some control. Yeah. This is a way I can feel like I'm being a husband yeah. in the midst of all this. And some of that's helpful, some of it's not. <laughs> yeah, because you begin to obsess. And, yeah. Yeah. Which leads me to another question that I never really thought I'd be uh, asking, but even pastorally, this has come up with people who have had some difficult uh, uh, situations, involvement with the medical system. Mm -hmm. is, is Western medicine 
like worthless? Is it broken? Should we all just be like, you know, become pescatarians and take our essential oils? I mean, is Western medicine worthwhile? Oh, I'm just stuck on pescatarian. Uh, yeah, <laughs> That's the, when you can't see at night. Yes. Yeah. Uh, so this is, I mean, you're setting me up with a softball. Like, obviously, the way you frame that question, the answer is no, it's not worthless. Um, but there is a tendency to like, you, you get skeptical because of some bad interactions or some bad judgment calls or something that is wrong in Western medicine. And you just carry that attitude into every setting. Um, can you give me an example? Yeah. Uh, so like my daughter, um, my, my wife's condition is somehow genetic. Uh, they did a, they did an exome test on her and the next step was like genome test and we just didn't follow through because it's too hard to go to the hospital and we don't care. Um, but we didn't ever identify like what's the genetic marker and has it been passed on? But we know it's genetic because my kids have inherited some of these problems. And my daughter in 2019 was, um, was basically struck with something that looked like Guillain-Barre syndrome, which is all the nerves in her legs started screaming at her that they were burning. Yeah. Uh, so she went through intense pain in her legs and then she lost motor function in her legs over the course of like 24 hours. And, uh, so she was, she couldn't walk. She couldn't have anything touch her legs. She was unable to sleep. And this, this happened right before I left for the internship, by the way. Yeah. So we go to children's hospital in, in Vanderbilt. Uh, they spend two weeks doing workups. They got nothing. And again, when they can't explain something, they don't like that. So rather than saying she has a disease we can identify, they said, well, she's making it up. She needs like a psychological workup. And to the point that like, maybe, maybe they're right. Like, am I crazy? Is she crazy? What's going on here? It felt a little bit like being gaslit. Mm -hmm. And eventually I realized like, logically that's not even possible. Like when she's dead asleep, if I touch her leg, she whimpers and flinches. Like it's a, it's a real pain. Um, and then they, they basically said like, yeah, we just want you out of here or we're going to call like CPS and get her put in this program that basically like forces her to use her legs. Mm. Um, so I didn't want to go to jail. So I was like, okay, yep, sounds good. And got her out of there and we didn't go back. Um, we started trying to seek out like alternative medicine stuff. Like, is there someone who will help her somewhere? And and in, in, in the end, when we were in D.C., we ended up at a children's hospital where they had a pretty robust uh, neurologics program. So we went to a neurologist, and they sent us to a subspecialty of neuromuscular doctors. There aren't any in Alabama or in Tennessee that I'm aware of. So this pediatric neuromuscular doctor said, yeah, well, you know, it's pretty rare, but let's test for all these, these antibodies because it could be something like Guillain-Barre. Sure. Uh, meanwhile, her primary care doctor who's been treating... Catherine's primary care doctor, who's been treating our, her for years, says, yeah, I think your daughter has the same thing as you. And instead of attacking her internal organs, it's attacking her legs. And, uh, and he was right. They, they did this test, and she had these rare anti-GM1 antibodies. It mimics like Guillain-Barre, causes all these horrendous dysfunctions in the mm -hmm. nerve endings. And they put her on IVIG, and after a couple treatments, she was walking again. Mm. Um, and so I went through the whole spectrum there, right? Like I, I hate these people. They don't, they, they, they can't be wrong. So they're just giving some useless answer and sending us on our way. Uh, so Western medicine has failed us. 
right? So where's the, where's the alternative? Where's the other, the, the naturopathic medicine? Where can I find some other answer? Uh, because they legitimately had failed us. Um, and in the end, what we really needed was still a gift of Western medicine. It was yeah. this very specialized, like, therapy, this, immune, this immunological therapy that's, that's, that's pretty hard to, to come by these days because it's, it's fairly new medicine. Yeah. Um, but it healed her. And so that's kind of been my experience. Like, we, we have something that happens in the hospital and I think medicine is broken. Like, how could they have made this mistake? With Catherine, how could they have not seen this and corrected it? Like this, this is obviously not working, and yet in the end, it's only Western medicine that's kept her alive after multiple series. Like she's gotten line infections, she's had sepsis multiple times, she's been in septic shock, she had her stomach rupture, uh, she had to have an emergency laparotomy where they repaired her stomach. I mean, she should have been dead multiple times now, mm-hmm. um, but. Western medicines kept her alive. So it, it really is like a yes, but no. Yeah. Um, there are all sorts of problems in our medical system. There's a lot of ideological problems, even in, in medicine, that mm-hmm. that sort of skew everything in one way. Um, we've already mentioned one, just like the unwillingness to admit we don't know yeah. is such a problem in academic circles, especially. At big academic hospitals will not say that. An example of this, we went to the Mayo Clinic uh, in 2017, uh, Catherine's blood oxygen saturation, which shows how much oxygen's in her blood, right. was tanking. Little pulse oximeter on her finger would read like 60, and then she'd, she'd faint. Yeah. Uh, she saw cardiologists here locally. She saw um, all kinds of doctors that basically said, we don't know, go to Mayo. So she got a referral to Mayo, went up there. The Mayo doctors could not explain the phenomena so they started just rigorously testing it over and over again with different pulse oximeters. They'd put them on her forehead. They had her do, uh, they, they put a catheter in her, in her artery, in her chest, and had her on her back bicycling on this bicycle machine <laughs> to get her heart rate up yeah. while sampling blood so that they could literally real test time. the gas in her blood in real time. Wow. And it happened every time. And so after this week of testing, they said, our pulse oximeters were faulty. And when your blood oxygen from the vial we took said 38, we just assumed that it was mislabeled. And literally the doctors in the room with her were arguing in front of her saying, the machine's broken. No, it's not. The mach- if it's broken, we need to get rid of it, but you're going to yeah. use it for the next patient, aren't you? And he said, yeah, well, it's, it's not broken. And yeah. they would argue. And so in the end, Western medicine, again, like that's one of those things that, that, was frustrating is they just refused to say, we don't know. Yeah. Um, but again, vancomycin and daptomycin, all these antibiotics yeah, have yeah. literally kept her from death multiple times. So, yeah. you know, I think, I think that's probably a good place for us to launch into our, our uh, rapid fire questions, which I never have planned in advance. So let's see how this okay. goes. <sighs> uh, what do you do for a hobby? Is this rapid fire answers too? Yeah, Just three blur, seconds or less. out the same thing. Yeah. Uh, I like to shoot guns. Ooh. And I like gardening. I, I used to like jujitsu. That's the yin and the yang for you right there. You used to like jujitsu. <sighs> yeah. But I still like jujitsu. I just don't have a lot of free time for it. And I'm yeah. getting just slowly getting worse every time I try. And I think you're just getting older. It's, it's the combination. It's a big problem. Yeah. Which is not good. Yeah. Uh, favorite book. Do you have a favorite book? 
fiction or nonfiction? Uh, obviously, the Bible, top of the list. Um, but yeah, let's do fiction and then nonfiction. Favorite fictional book? Um, it's hard to choose one. Well, no, it's a real book, but the genre is fiction. I'm really... Not my best work. No, I'm really partial to uh, Lonesome Dove. Yeah. Um, I like basically everything Cormac McCarthy's ever written. Yeah. If you can see a pattern here. Yeah. Dark uh, Westerns. Yeah, Dark Westerns. Yeah. They, I'm, I'm, I'm a sucker for those. All right. Uh, nonfiction. Nonfiction. That's tough. Um, well, then let me ask it this way. Yeah. What, what <clears throat> lists some of the most oh. influential... Influential, okay. Sure, I'm theology going for books. It. Influential theology books. Pilgrim's Progress. Mm. I know it's just such a such a basic bro answer, but yeah. I love it. Yeah. Uh, I had it read to me. I think it was actually the children's version of Pilgrim's Progress. Have you ever read Little Pilgrim's Progress? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I read that to my kids when they were growing up. Uh, I had the children's version of that read to me in school when I had been kicked out of the public middle school here in sixth grade in oh, Huntsville. Wow. Yeah. And my family... Uh, my mom was too poor to afford it, but my grandparents funded me going to the private Lutheran school, yeah. thinking that that would help. Yeah, And I was terrible and was failing most of my classes, but there was a teacher who read Little Pilgrim's Progress. Yeah, And I didn't know the name of the book because I didn't pay attention. Right, But I had, I listened intently and had vivid, like the imagery in my mind and had, had longed to read that book and understand it because I felt like it was, there was something behind it I wasn't yeah, understanding, yeah, yeah. but yeah, I yeah. wanted to yeah. uh, long before I was a Christian. Yeah. And when I was a Christian, I I'd sought out that book. I still didn't know what the name of it was, yeah, right. but I thought, I want to find out what happened to him. Mm. And I want to know why he did all that stuff and how that related to the Christian life. Yeah. And I was literally Googling like story about Christian guy on paths with scroll. <laughs> and like, I couldn't figure out what it was called. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and then when I found it and read it, I thought, oh, oh, this, is, this is so good. Uh, you know, I had a similar experience with uh, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Mm -hmm. I hated reading as a kid. The only books I ever read were like Goosebumps, mm -hmm. you know? And uh, we were homeless for a time. And so my mom was like doing her best to like keep me doing school. So she would just bring me books and mm -hmm. I would just like read them while she'd be passed out and drunk. Oh, yeah. And uh, I remember the only book that I actually read all the way through was The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. And I look back on that and I wonder like if that's one of the first gospel seeds that the Lord mm -hmm. ever planted in my heart. Yeah, same with me. My, my mom read those to me as a kid and I vividly remember those. yeah. Okay, so um, favorite candy? I don't really like candy. All right, well, that says that tells us everything we need to know. Yeah, I'm least, not... least favorite candy? Uh, this, uh, this really sweet kind. I think that's just candy. I'm talking like someone who's never eaten it. Sorry. Yeah. Uh, how do you say in English? <laughs> Je ne sais quoi. Uh, yeah, I'm not a candy guy. Okay, uh, what's your what's your go to? Like, I'll, like... Eat a I'll eat chocolate. I'll eat ice cream. I'll eat like. What's your, like, what if, like, I've had, like, a brutally long day, crazy elders meeting, or is this just me? <laughs> I'm going to stop by somewhere Dude, do you need to and talk? shame eat in a car <laughs> on the way home. Yeah. Now, what's your go-to, like, bat, like junk food? Uh, like, I, I like salty stuff, so I'll eat, uh, like, a, like bag, a bag of like potato a chips. bag of corn chips. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I will eat ice cream, though. 
Yeah. Just not a lot. You are genetically inferior. You mm. can't be around peanuts. That's true. You will literally die. So yeah. if anybody wants to assassinate Russell topic. for being a bigot, yeah, see the coddling Kids of the American today. mind. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Favorite movie? Uh, so it's a toss-up. Um, maybe between No Country for Old Men, big surprise, Cormac yeah. McCarthy. Uh, I, I, above that, I would probably put Unforgiven, Clint Eastwood. Yeah. Uh, and then Whiplash, I think, is in my so, top three. So no, There Will Be Blood doesn't make it up there, huh? Uh, I It's slightly down the list, but it's an honorable mention. Okay. All yeah. right, we'll take that. Yeah. Favorite book of the Bible. Are you allowed to have one of those? Uh, you can also replace it with most formative up till now. Favorite book or most formative? Maybe First John. Hmm, how come? Uh, most formative and just helping me as a young Christian really understand the two ditches of how can I be a Christian, but I'm still sinning. Yeah. Uh, like, oh, well, it's because I'm not sinning because I'm perfect. Yeah. That, you know, so that second sanctification idea. Uh, or? Or, um, oh, I've sinned, therefore I've lost my salvation. Yeah. Uh, First John, I think, helped me through that. Good. Well, I think that's probably where we will uh, call it for this episode. On the next episode with Russell Berger, which I'm sure will happen, we'll talk about... Uh, combat stories and owning a CrossFit gym mm. and uh, having a, a, a the mustache of a Civil War hero, <laughs> making your own kombucha and uh, a bunch of other things. Is there any final uh, thought that you want to share with anyone who has been following along the Burger family journey? They kind of want to know what's been going on. Anything else? Maybe a prayer request? Anything along those lines? Sure. Uh, so I mentioned during that very rough season a uh, year and a half, two years ago at this point. Um, Catherine was in remission, doing mm -hmm. really well. She's she's had some problems and kind of regressed back to some pretty bad symptoms that she's having trouble controlling. Um, not doing as well, not driving anymore. Um, and so just pray that we would get through this. Um, and, and lately... She actually spent about a month in the hospital uh, recently, and she's in a position where she's running out of easy access for the mm -hmm. central line that she's gets all of her food and water through. Mm -hmm. And they can only put so many of those in, and every time she gets an infection, they have to take it out. Right. So there's a day coming where they won't be able to put one in, and she'll die. And we don't know quite how many she has left, but it's not many. And in fact, this last hospitalization, they really struggled to yeah. keep access on her. And that's that was really hard, uh, very emotionally hard, spiritually hard. It's something that we've really not been able to shake off and have, you know, it's it's we're we're facing death pretty pretty clearly here. And uh so yeah, prayers that we would handle that well, be able to talk to the kids about that well. Yeah. That's a lot, brother. Thank you. Yep. Um I'm getting ready to, I'm writing my sermon for next week. Philippians chapter four, verse one, chapter four, verse one. Paul writing to the Philippian church says, therefore, my brothers whom I love and long for my joy and my crown stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. And one of the things that stands out to me in this verse is the way that <clears throat> Paul in basically one breath tells them twice that he loves them, mm -hmm. you know? And uh, I want to tell you brother that I love you. Thanks, and I'm really thankful to know you and to do ministry with you and to be on this journey with you and even to uh, shepherd your family through all this. I've made some mistakes and learned some lessons, but 
there's been an abundance of love and grace. And uh, yeah, I'm just really thankful for all that the Lord's doing uh, through you. Thank you, brother. Love you too. Yeah. Lord Jesus, thank you so much for the Berger family. Uh, what a testimony of grace um, you've, you've, you've given them. And Lord, you've used them to strengthen the faith of so many and to encourage and even to exhort and rebuke and challenge those who need that as well. So we pray, uh, God, that you'll give, give them even more grace uh, to, to handle the challenging days a- ahead and to do so uh, with eyes set on your son Jesus, hearts full of hope. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, just believing uh, the what is unfortunately a cliche scripture to many, but is really our bedrock hope that all things work together for the good of those who love you. Amen. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.